If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. Still at Large Unsolved British Murders Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 2, Episode 6 Deborah Lindsley 1988 Wednesday the 23rd of March 1988 was much like the rest of the month. It was overcast with showers, although generally mild. Kylie Minogue was riding high in the charts with I Should Be So Lucky, which couldn't be said of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. The Troubles is the euphemism given to the long-running civil war between Republican terrorist and Loyalist forces in the six counties in the Ulster province of Ireland. March had been a very bloody month, with the death of three IRA members in Gibraltar during Operation Flavius by the Special Air Service. Ten days after their deaths, during the funerals at Milltown Cemetery, a Loyalist paramilitary, Michael Stone, had thrown grenades and opened fire, killing three and wounding 70. Three days later, Two corporals from the British Army, Derek Wood and David Howes, were dragged from their car and murdered when they drove into the funeral cortege of one of the IRA members killed during the Milltown Cemetery attack. Life on the mainland was, however, pretty normal for most people. For 26-year-old Deborah Lindsley, it was the day she would return to her home in Edinburgh following a few days visiting her family and friends in Bromley, South East London following a training course in London. Deborah was going to be her brother's bridesmaid in two weeks' time, and the trip was a welcome break that allowed her to catch up with the wedding plans. At the time, the train was the most sensible and economic way to travel around the UK, so her brother took her to Petswood train station, some 20 minutes away, so that she could catch the Orpington to London Victoria train, and then onwards to Scotland. Her brother Gordon drove her in his red Ford Capri and dropped her off outside of the station. Debbie, as she was known, was wearing a black batwing leather jacket, a blue dress that came down to her shins, blue tights and grey low-heeled shoes. She carried her black leather handbag on a shoulder strap and a larger olive-coloured holdall with sandy-coloured leather fixtures. She was going to catch the 216 train. Debbie boarded a carriage and took her seat. The rolling stock in 1988 was a bit long in the tooth, with many of the coaches having seen service since the days of steam. 
The style of carriage that Debbie entered was one with a sealed compartment, with slam doors on either side, and two sets of bench seats that faced each other. Once the train was moving, there was no way to leave that compartment, but each compartment was fitted with an emergency pull cord to stop the train if necessary. Once her luggage was stowed, Debbie sat down and in the next few minutes the lives of her family would be altered forever and hers lost to the actions of an unknown assailant. The train Debbie had called was a stopping service. These trains are generally slower than the direct services as they stop at every station to collect passengers. It is not known if the carriage Debbie entered was empty at Pets Wood or if someone joined her at a later station. The first stop was Bickley, then Bromley South, then Shortlands. After that was Beckenham Junction, then Kent House, after which came Penge East. At Penge East, a man witnesses described as being in his 30s with sandy-coloured hair and a pale jacket was seen to jump from the train and to change carriages to an open coach at the front of the train. Police have never been able to identify who this man was. There may be an innocent explanation for the changing carriage, and it isn't known if he exited the carriage that Debbie was in. Those closed compartments were really abused by a small section of the commuters who used them, and from my own personal experience, finding vomit or other human waste was not particularly unusual, and sometimes unpleasant odours from previous passengers weren't apparent until the train was underway. Carriage hopping was quite a common practice. Police would still like to trace and hopefully eliminate this man from their inquiries, although I would struggle to recall every time I changed carriages in the 1980s. After Penge East, the train continued on its way, stopping at West Dulwich, then Herne Hill, followed by Brixton, which is the last stop before crossing the River Thames and arriving at Victoria Station. It is believed that Debbie was murdered shortly after the train left Brixton, as it began the longest uninterrupted stretch of the journey. Closed compartment coaches had many individual compartments in them, and in an adjoining but inaccessible compartment, a young Frenchwoman, Helene Jocelyn, was similarly making her way into the city. Helene was working in the UK as an au pair. Shortly after the train left Brixton, Helene heard screaming. Quote, I had never heard such screams. They stopped for about five seconds and started again. She called out as if for help. They were screams of fear and very, very loud. I wanted to use the alarm, but I remained glued to my seat. End quote. For many people, this inaction would seem to be against their everyday impulses. But Helene Jocelyn was a young woman, travelling alone, and because of the fear the screams induced, found herself unable to act. Pulling on the emergency cord would have made the train grind to a halt between stations. And although I have never been in that situation, I can, somewhat, empathise with her. From the carriage door to the bed of the railway line would have been around 6 feet, or 1.8 metres. Between the stops is a hinterland of spare parts of track, high chain-link fences, and often there are steep-sided concrete culverts that comprise the route, 
halting a train, clambering down, and being faced with the unknown reason for a terrified, screaming woman would absolutely intimidate a young au pair. Whilst it's easy to criticise her in action from this distance in time, understanding the immobilising fear is more complex, but does provide some context. The train arrived on time at London, Victoria, and the clatter of doors and disembarkation filled the air. It was a common practice when a train reached the end of the line for passengers to leave the doors open upon exiting the train. The passengers would have then made their way along the station concourse towards the gate. Victoria Station is one of those classically themed buildings, a cathedral to early modern society. The large expanse of roof is held aloft by towering pillars of ornate cast iron and has large sections of glass to allow for a reasonable quality of light. But in the 1980s, the glass was often sooty and the entire scene had a certain gloomy crepuscular feeling to it, even on the brightest of days. It stands as a testament to the industrial revolution that the steam engine brought, and in the 1980s it stood somewhere between the entirely analogue world and the burgeoning digital revolution. The tickets were given a cursory glance by the staff who manned the gate. As the passengers streamed away from the train, it was customary for a visual inspection to be carried out on the carriages and compartments. On the 23rd of March 1988, this was undertaken by station porter Ron Lacey. At 2.50, just 32 minutes after boarding the train, Deborah Lindsley's body was discovered in a pool of blood. She had been repeatedly stabbed. Almost immediately, all trains on that line were cancelled, the platform sealed off and an investigation begun. Passengers were questioned. This was the point where Helene Jocelyn was first interviewed. As part of her witness statement, Helene described a well-built man of 40 to 50. He had ginger hair that came down to his collar and he wore a moustache. She stated that he appeared to limp away from the train but it is unsure whether he came from the compartment where Debbie had been so viciously attacked. This man has yet to be traced by police. Was it the same man who was seen earlier in the journey, changing carriages at Penge East? In those days, it was quite easy to access other platforms by simply walking to another gate. This technique was often used by commuters wanting to avoid the group that would gather at the official gate. Often gates without trains at the platform were unmanned and it was simple to walk through without showing a ticket or being noticed by anyone. It is possible that her killer simply walked away from the platform and disappeared into the main station and from there the streets, the tube or other train services. Debbie is known to have smoked two cigarettes and eaten half a sandwich during the course of the journey as these were found in the compartment during the forensic examination of the scene. This is taken to indicate that for the first part of her journey, Debbie was relaxed and comfortable. It is believed that she died shortly after leaving Brixton Station. What is clear is that Debbie had put up a struggle against her assailant. She had wounds on her hands consistent with defending herself against the knife-wielding maniac she found herself trapped with. In total, she had been stabbed 11 times in the body and neck. 
One of these stab wounds had pierced her heart, which ultimately led to her death. There seems to have been little or no motive beyond violently assaulting her. Debbie's clothes had not been disarrayed, and the purse still contained the five pounds which she had borrowed from her brother that morning. Whoever this abominable man was, he struck her viciously and repeatedly with a very sharp knife. During the post-mortem, the knife was found to be five to seven and a half inches, or 12.7 to 19 centimetres in length. No such weapon was found at the scene or anywhere the police subsequently searched. It was entirely possible that the killer simply threw the knife from the train as it passed over the Thames, or that he took it with him. The attack seems to have been premeditated in that the killer took the knife with him onto the train, and that it was a tragic set of circumstances that allowed him to be able to attack a defenceless young woman in a sealed compartment. It is a strange killing, premeditated and opportunistic, a random attack on a complete stranger on public transport in the middle of the afternoon. The timing of her murder suggests someone who knew the route of the train and the time it would take from leaving Brixton to arriving at Victoria without any other stops. The journey takes around six minutes from platform to platform, meaning that the killer had to start the assault almost immediately on leaving Brixton. The lack of motive, beyond the violence itself, is curious too. The savagery associated with it, in some ways, indicates that this man had a history of violence, although it is not impossible that this was the first offence by the killer. It is likely that the killer already had had contact with the police or mental health services. However, had he been arrested, convicted and served his time before 1997, when the National DNA Database was founded, his records would not have included his DNA profile. The evidence left at the scene did contain it. During the attack, the perpetrator received a cut somewhere on him, and it is most likely to have been his hands, which would have been noticeable to anyone who knew him, or anyone who came into contact with him. Of all the types of cases, the stranger killing is the most difficult to solve. In any investigation, those closest to the victim will come under scrutiny from the police first. Significant others, spouses, partners, family, friends. Anyone with a link to the murdered person will be the initial suspects. But with an opportunistic premeditated murder, the usual progressive establishment of means, motive and opportunity aren't there, or at least there with the same degree of visibility of a crime from a person known to the deceased. The nature of the attack is peculiar in that there seems to have been no other motive than to inflict harm and take a life of a complete stranger. The choice of victim is hardly remarkable, a young woman travelling alone in a sealed compartment. Despite the time of day, this left Debbie in a very vulnerable position, yet that danger was hardly seen, and it was the middle of the afternoon and there were plenty of other passengers around and the stations the train passed through were manned. And yet, the killer took the remotest opportunity to carry out, in reality, a fantasy that he had obviously harboured, nurtured and fed in the years prior to this offence. 
there are several ways to consider his victim choice. He would have been hunting for that exact scenario over a number of weeks or months, travelling regularly on that route to familiarise himself with the stopping pattern and gaps between the stations. Or that he was a local and used the train regularly and just happened upon a young woman in a train compartment on the same day he was carrying a large sharp knife. Or that he was intelligent enough to read the timetables, work out the space between the stops and took the first opportunity he could. On the same carriage in the adjoining compartment was an 18-year-old girl, so the killer was almost spoiled for choice. His ability to melt into the background crowd, which was larger than usual due to a football match taking place in the capital, could be down to luck. And even the eyewitness accounts of people who were seen, the man with the pale jacket and the man with the ginger hair and moustache, may not have been Debbie's assailant. With neither man coming forward or being identified, doubts remain about their connection to the attack. The ferocity of the attack indicates that the assailant was likely to have been covered in blood splatter, or at least bleeding. A cut hand could be easy enough to hide, even a wound substantial enough to require medical intervention by placing the affected hand in a pocket. It's entirely plausible that the killer was a loner, someone with a marked personality disorder, mental health condition or antisocial personality. It is also possible that the killer was a rather quiet individual, maybe someone who was still living with his parents or mother. Stranger murders are rare. Violent assaults carried out in a public space against a stranger by an unknown attacker are very unusual. But in the 1980s, there are a number of similar killings. Several of the men responsible or accused of those crimes are certainly worth considering as viable suspects, or the cases they were involved with bear more than a passing resemblance to Debbie Lindley's murder. Let's have a quick look at these in no particular order. Colin Ash Smith was convicted in 2014 of the murder of 16-year-old Claire Tiltman in 1993. Claire was a pupil at Dartford Grammar School for Girls, who was viciously attacked mere yards from a busy road when she took a shortcut down an alleyway near to a zebra crossing. Her attacker stabbed her 40 times in a random and unprovoked and deadly assault. Her murder went unsolved for 20 years until Ash Smith made a confession to a cellmate, Stephen Dubois, real name Molière. Ash Smith was in prison for the attempted murder of two other women. In 1988, Ash Smith attempted to rape and murder a young mother in a quarry, and in 1995, attempted to murder 22-year-old Charlotte Bernard. This was an unprovoked attack from a complete stranger that saw Charlotte being stabbed 14 times and left for dead. Ash Smith was convicted and sentenced to life for those attacks. Having served 18 years of the minimum 21-year tariff, Colin Ash Smith was set for early release following a decision to free him by the parole board. However, Ash Smith was arrested as soon as he left prison to be charged with Claire Tiltman's murder. He had killed Claire close to where he attacked Charlotte. Ash Smith was 24 when he attacked Claire in 1993 and was just 20 years old in 1988. 
He was a brazen and dangerous killer, even attending Claire Tiltman's funeral, wearing the same beige jacket he wore the day he killed her. He denies being involved with her murder. It was proven that he established a set of false alibis, and that his parents went to considerable effort to support some of his alibis, and even tamper with evidence. His father, Aubrey, was sent to prison for 12 months following the discovery that he had dismantled, boiled, and ultimately threw away the knife it is suspected his son used in the attacks. Perverting the course of justice is a baffling behaviour. I understand the love of a parent and the urge to protect your offspring, but I have never been comfortable with it. Even the seemingly innocuous action of taking responsibility as a driver who takes a ticket for a spouse to prevent the spouse from losing their driving licence is perverting the course of justice and is a criminal offence. It is, relatively speaking, minor in the criminal pantheon, but still, it's perverting the course of justice. Colin Ashsmith has ginger hair that sometimes he wore down to his collar and is known to occasionally wear a beard and moustache. Ashsmith is certainly an intriguing suspect and seems to fit with the pattern of behaviour of Debbie Lindsley's killer. He took a very sharp knife out with the sole purpose of attempting to kill young women in public spaces. As he was convicted in the 1990s and again in 2014, it is likely that his DNA profile would have been added to the national database. If that is the case, then he has probably been ruled out by comparison. The next person some have connected to this case is Robert Knapper. Knapper is a paranoid schizophrenic with Asperger's syndrome and a history of violent criminality. He is currently detained at Broadmoor Secure Hospital. His stay is indefinite, meaning he will probably never be released. The primary argument for Napa's involvement stems from the brutality of the knife attacks he carried out against young women in public places. His initial arrest was for the absolutely abominable slaughter of Samantha Bissett, whom he stabbed in the neck and chest before sexually assaulting her. He then smothered Samantha's four-year-old daughter Jasmine Jemima Bissett. Napa then proceeded to mutilate Samantha's body, removing parts of it as trophies. Napa was questioned in 1995 about the stranger killing of Rachel Nickel. Rachel was walking with her two-year-old son on Wimbledon Common when Napa viciously attacked her. He repeatedly stabbed her and cut her throat in front of her son. When she was found, her son was clinging to her body, trying to wake her up. It really is a terrible crime, and Napa is a degenerate of the highest order. The subsequent police investigation was a national scandal. In the immediate weeks following her death, police identified 32 possible suspects and very quickly began to focus on one particular suspect, Colin Stagg. There was no evidence linking Stagg to the attack on Rachel Nickell, and the police used the services of a criminal psychologist, Paul Britton, to compile a profile of the killer. It was decided 
that Stagg fitted the profile well enough for a special operation to entice him into making a confession. Officers from the Metropolitan Police began Operation Esdell to catch her killer. The main thrust of the investigation was the use of an undercover policewoman using the name Lizzie James to communicate with Stagg via Lonely Hearts columns, by telephone and by meeting in person. The bravery of the policewoman is astounding. The suspect they were pursuing was known to be highly sexually aggressive and lethally violent, but still she went. Stagg and Jones exchanged detailed sexual fantasies of a violent nature, and they even met on Wimbledon Common, where, it is alleged, that Stagg spoke of the murder of Rachel Nickell. The major flaw with the plan was, however, a very big problem. No matter how much the team tried to entice Stagg to confess, he wouldn't, and for good reason. The exchanges grew to the point where Lizzie Jones threatened to break things off. This conversation was recorded, and the transcript is quite revealing. Over the months they had been in communication, Jones had won Stagg's trust, and had made it apparent to him that she liked hurting people. She said, quote, if only you had done the Wimbledon Common murder, if only you had killed her, it would be all right. End quote. Colin Stagg's reply was anything but that which the police were hoping for. He said, quote, I'm terribly sorry, but I haven't. End quote. The police were without the confession they were hoping for, but went ahead and arrested him on suspicion of murder anyway. What followed was a terrible unmasking of overzealous policing and conflicting accounts of the subsequent interrogations and trial. The criminal psychologist claims that he had no input into the interrogation. Police claim that he was consulted before each session began and it is alleged that he told police that Stagg's seemingly contradictory behaviours in the sessions were further proof of his guilt. During the trial, it emerged that the techniques used were best described as a honeypot, and the judge, Mr Justice Ognall, ruled that the police had shown excessive zeal in their prosecution of Colin Stagg, and that the police had tried to convict an innocent man by, quote, deceptive conduct of the grossest kind, end quote. Justice Ognall rejected all of the evidence from the entrapment techniques, and in September 1994, Colin Stagg was formally acquitted of all charges. With their primary case in tatters, the case of Rachel Nickell went unsolved, until a cold case review in 2002. The new investigative team resubmitted evidence from the scene to new forensic tests. These revealed that there were traces of male DNA that were from a male unconnected to the victim. It wasn't, however, a large enough sample to be of use to identify the suspect. Police went to Broadmoor to question Robert Knapper in July 2006 and spent two days there. In November 2007, Knapper was charged with Rachel Nickell's murder. His initial plea, when the trial began in November 2008, was not guilty. But on December the 18th, at the Old Bailey, Napa pleaded guilty to the offence. Colin Stagg received a public apology for his arrest and a substantial settlement. 
with a policewoman known as Lizzie Jones, was also given a substantial settlement for the psychological trauma she went through during the investigation. She has since retired from the police. Although I can see why there may be some reasons for considering Robert Knapper, because of his habit of violently attacking women with a knife, there are plenty of reasons that would count against him. Knapper's offences almost always had a sexual aspect to them, either by raping his victims or sexually assaulting them. Both of these key points were missing from the attack on Debbie Lindsley. That crime seems incongruous with the rest of Knapper's known behaviours. The last suspect is even more complicated, and still at large. On Saturday the 18th of June, 1988, 22-year-old Marie Wilkes drove to her parents' house in Worcester to collect her 11-year-old sister. In the car was her 13-month-old son, and Marie was expecting her second child. This was the first big trip for Marie, who had passed her driving test two months before. She drove to Simmons Yacht, a village that straddles the River Wye in Herefordshire. Marie's husband, Adrian, was instructing local youths from the Hereford and Worcester Cadet Force there. At around 7pm, Marie, her sister and her son got back into the car at Morris Marina with a black vinyl roof to drive back to Worcester. As Marie was a new driver, she had avoided the motorway, the M50, on the way there, but became a little lost during the journey back and ended up on the motorway. Motorways are intimidating places for new drivers and most shy away from them until they feel more confident behind the wheel. A short while after joining the M50 eastbound, Marie's car broke down. Morris Marinas were quite awful cars and prone to breaking down regularly. Marie steered her car onto the hard shoulder and came to a halt 700 yards or 640 metres from emergency telephone number 20768. In the days before mobile phones, these telephones were placed along the hard shoulder and were direct dial telephones connected to the emergency services. They're still in service today. 37 minutes after leaving her husband in Simmons Yacht, Marie used emergency telephone 20768 to contact the police to ask them to call her parents to arrange for them to collect her and the children. Shortly after that, the police talked to Marie's mother, but unfortunately, her father was out fishing and had the family car. At 7.41pm, the emergency operator tried to contact Marie, but could only hear traffic sounds. They try again three minutes later. Five minutes later, at 7.49pm, a patrol car from Strensham Services, a motorway rest area with fast food, fuel and a few shops, finds Marie's younger sister walking on the hard shoulder carrying her infant nephew. At 7.51pm, the emergency operator dispatches a breakdown vehicle to collect the car and people as soon as possible as Marie is pregnant. At 7.59pm, the police on the scene declare Marie missing. By 8.30pm that evening, there were 50 police officers on foot, police with tracker dogs and a police helicopter involved in the search for Marie. The following dawn, blood is found around the emergency phone booth. Quite how it wasn't seen the previous evening is anybody's guess. It was three days before the summer solstice, 
and light until quite late. At 6pm on Monday the 20th of June, Marie's body is found three miles from where she was last seen. She had been deposited on an embankment by the M50. She had been stabbed in the right side of her throat. This injury severed her carotid artery. Marie had also suffered a broken jaw, which police believe was caused by either being hit or kicked to the side of the head. Tire marks and other evidence pointed to a car having stopped on the hard shoulder and then reversed behind the crash barrier before Marie was uncaringly left by the road and out of sight. This is an extraordinarily audacious crime. At no point was there not a chance for the killer to be seen. Cars continued to flow along the M50 through the period of her abduction, murder and deposition. There has been some criticism of the drivers on the eastbound carriageway of the M50 that day, who would have seen a young girl carrying a child on the hard shoulder, and yet who failed to stop or make contact with the police. On Friday the 24th of June, police issue an artist's impression of a man they would like to trace in connection with the case. The accompanying description reads, quote, White with thin, sharp features, a pronounced chin and a long nose, in his twenties of a youngish appearance. His hair was cut in the modern style, blonde, short and spiky, with possible yellow or orange highlights. He was of smart, casual appearance, as if on his way to a night out. He was wearing a blue and white striped shirt, dark or royal blue trousers, end quote. On Saturday the 25th of June, police stage a reconstruction. At 7pm in a small village in the Rhondda Valley in Wales, police arrest former Welsh guardman Eddie Browning in connection with her murder. He stood trial in Shrewsbury Crown Court on the 3rd of October 1989 with a plea of not guilty. Friday, November the 10th, the jury find him guilty of the murder of Marie Wilkes. He is sentenced to life in prison. He immediately begins appeal proceedings against the conviction. His first appeal, in 1991, fails, but Browning persists, and in 1994, at his second appeal, his conviction was deemed to be unsafe and Eddie Browning was released. Judges ruled that the jurors might not have reached the decision they did had all the pertinent evidence about the suspected murderer's car been disclosed to the defence team. For those who have been following recent reports about the British legal system, you will be familiar with the collapse of certain rape trials due to a lack of disclosure of evidence that would exonerate the accused. It is beyond baffling that exculpatory evidence is not disclosed. If there is evidence that the person in custody is innocent, that should be the moment for a review of the evidence and new suspects to be found, or at least the current suspect being released. In the instance we're looking at, police held a video of off-duty West Mercia officer, Inspector Pete Clark, who was supposedly under hypnosis, and gave the description and registration number of a car he saw at the scene when passing. He described a silver-grey, non-metallic, non-hatchback Renault car with chrome bumpers and the registration number c 8 H-F-K. Mr Browning's car was a hatchback Renault with plastic bumpers and the registration number C-8-5-6-H-F-K. 
754VAD. The decision was also made by the investigation team not to disclose two messages from Mr. Clark about what he had seen on the M50. Eddie Browning was later awarded damages believed to be in excess of £600,000. And there the story should end, with Mr. Browning returning to his life and not appearing again in the public records. But he wasn't to disappear entirely. In the year 2000, Eddie Browning was wounded by Kenny Latton, who hit him with an iron bar at Browning's new flat. Latton claimed that Browning had admitted to killing Marie Wilkes and told Latton that he wanted to burn the car he had been driving the day Marie was murdered. Browning claimed that the iron bar used in the assault was kept for protection following several threats being made against him following his release. Latton was subsequently cleared of malicious wounding. There's much more of interest about Eddie Browning in the subsequent years, but it isn't relevant to the connection with Debbie Lindsley. Browning is an incidental figure with the eyewitness reports of a blonde-haired assailant being the key information. Whoever killed Debbie was a brazen murderer who took the briefest of opportunities to violently assault a young woman using a knife to repeatedly stab her, which is startlingly similar to the murder of Marie Wilkes. There was an element of premeditation in that instance in that the killer had placed a sharp knife in his car and had then taken the slimmest of opportunities to abduct and murder a young woman by the side of a motorway on which there was traffic flowing past, and then to leave her body by the side of the same motorway just three miles down the road. So if Eddie Browning is innocent of the murder of Marie Wilkes, which all evidence suggests he is, the actual killer is still free, still at large. If you have any information about the murder of Deborah Lindsley or Marie Wilkes, please call 101 and explain that you have information about the cases. Whoever carried out these attacks is a dangerous and volatile man and should not be challenged in person. Leave that to the police. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. You can join in with conversations about the show on our Facebook discussion group by visiting Facebook Still at Large podcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White. Links to his catalogue are in the show notes. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>